New writing. New no. writing. New no. writing. No. New writing. You're no. listening to a podcast by New Writing No. Welcome to this Durham Book Festival 2020 podcast. For the first time ever this year, the festival is taking place solely online, but we're really proud of the programme we've managed to put together under lockdown. Inevitably, we've not been able to include all the books and writers that we'd have liked to. I'm Rebecca Wilkie from New Writing North. I'm Grace Keane from New Writing North. And I'm Claire Malcolm from New Writing North. And these are some of the books we're most excited about reading this autumn. So obviously so, we've all been um, talking a lot during lockdown, haven't we, about work things um, and then books for Durham Book Festival. But it's nice now to have a bit of space to talk about the other stuff we were reading. Like, I mean, I know, Grace, you've launched a YouTube channel during lockdown, so you've been very productive in the reading space. <laughs> but like, I know a lot of people have struggled to read or have been reading different mm. things. Yeah. How has it been for you guys? I remember talking to Rebecca about this right at the start of lockdown, where, you know, it was like the news every night and you were saying, Rebecca, that you were kind of struggling to read a bit, whereas I think I just went totally the other way and basically all I've done since March is read, like, as much as possible. Um, so, yeah, I also think, yeah, I'm not sure what it is, apart from, I guess, trying to escape the world. I know concentration for people has been a thing, but for whatever reason, I've just been reading more than ever. I did really struggle at the start of lockdown to read anything that wasn't a comforting book that I'd probably read before. So I was mostly just reading like Persephone books and Eva Ibbotson books and things like that. But then I think by about April, May, I was back on track and I've been reading quite a lot and think that actually this year it's one of the best years for books we've had for several years I actually think there's so much both fiction and non-fiction out this year some of which has been really kind of lost and fallen under the radar because of the the way we've all been living it's it's almost like there's too much to read this year there's so much at the beginning of lockdown I remember thinking this will be great like the upside of all this horror is all the extra time for reading and I think I've read about what I would have read anyway in terms of the amount of books but I think I've read quite differently and I did definitely struggle I agree Rebecca in the early weeks I could not concentrate and I could only read things that were comfort I don't really like that term comfort read but comfort reads but I too like Persephone books but my comfort reads for the early lockdown were Jack Reacher novels by Lee Child because I think what you get in those novels which are brilliant on many levels but if you get somebody sorting everything out and I think in those early weeks and possibly still now I'm still looking for the Reacher who's going to come and sort all this mm. stuff out. I think interestingly my reading changed less when lockdown happened than it did with all the Black Lives Matter movement that came a bit later on in June. I actually found that and climate discussions weirdly I feel like my readings changed more because of those sort of social and activist issues coming more to the forefront so I've definitely I wasn't a big non-fiction reader to be honest generally just because fiction is like my one true love but since the resurgence of the Black Lives Matter movement I've been trying to read and like educate myself a lot more in non-fiction about that but then also just trying to put my money where my mouth is and when I'm buying new books or backlist books trying to make sure I'm reading like really diversely so I think that's interesting that this year I did kind of change up the reading but not to do with lockdown. 
I agree. I think I, I mean, I was going to wonder if we would talk about that today because obviously we read some things as a team as well around Black Lives Matter, didn't we? But it did set me off on a whole little reading thing of trying to ed get educated around a number of things. So um, Akala's book, Natives, I really like. Afropean um, by Johnny Pitts was great. And I read the Afro Hirsch British book, which I thought was brilliant, actually. But I think for me, it was more, I do read nonfiction. But that moment, I think, kind of repoliticized my reading. And I just had an urge. I remembered, like, there are things we still need to learn and work out about the world. And I had a real hunger for getting back into that a bit. So I have read more recently over the summer of the lockdown period, a lot more nonfiction than, than I would have ever read during yeah. a normal year, I think. I think also we can see it in a lot of fiction, can't we? A lot of these issues are coming out in fiction. A lot of the books were actually written before the, the Black Lives Matter protests of this year, but have felt even more timely when we've read them. So I'm thinking of things like Brit Bennett's The Vanishing Half, which you can check out on the Durham Book Festival website. We've got an event with Brit and many um, several others that just seem a lot more relevant and timely. One of the books I wanted to talk about today was How Much of These Hills is Gold by C. Pam Zhang, which is one of my books of the year, if not the last five years, actually. And it's all about identity and belonging and the meaning of home and the meaning of what it means to be American. It was obviously written about two, presumably about two years ago. I was alerted to it because it was long listed for the Booker Prize. I hadn't heard that much about it beforehand. It's published by Virago in the UK and it is a debut and it just blew my mind. I just think it's absolutely brilliant. I think the writing style is perfect for me. It's quite literary, but also very, very, I read it very, very quickly over about two days. And it's just different. It's different to anything that I'd read before. It's the story of two siblings who are really young. I think they're about 11 and 12 years old. They're alone in the American West. We don't know the exact date, but it's during the gold rush. So it must be the mid 1800s. And their father has just died and they need to bury him. And it's about the wildness of California and brutality of life for those people who were carving out a place for themselves in this new this new world and I've always been fascinated by America and California and beginning with my love of Little House on the Prairie when I was probably about seven years old but this certainly isn't Little House on the Prairie it's much more brutal mm. but also very beautiful. Is it um, a western? It has elements of western I suppose. Because when I, you I were talking I, about it it made me think about Days Without End, the Sebastian Barry book. Oh, that was, I think well, was Sebastian, similar. He, he's blurbed, he has blurbed the cover oh. describing C. Pam Zang as a truly gifted writer. And I think the cover design for the UK edition makes it look a bit like a Western because it has two horses. Mm -hmm. And there is a horse in it. They have a horse. I've definitely heard it described as a, as a Western um, when I've heard people talk about it. And which is quite interesting because I think that would have put me off. If I hadn't been long-listed in the book and I hadn't heard such amazing things, that might have put me off. I suppose that's the problem with like pigeonholing books too much into a genre. But I'm about halfway through it at the minute and I'm really enjoying it. And yeah, I definitely wouldn't maybe have picked it up if someone had told me it was a Western. I hadn't read 
a huge amount about the Chinese diaspora in, in America. I'd read Amy Tan's novels mm. and Celeste about Ings, it, really. Yeah, Celeste Ng's first book, Everything I Never Told You, is kind of about an Asian-American family. And It is, like, I've read that also. Book. Yeah, yeah, I've read that also. I was thinking San Francisco, though, and I was thinking about mm. Amy Tan and the, some of the, the second, the latter half of, of how much of these hills is gold is set in San Francisco, which is sort of emerging at that time. The Chinese community were treated terribly, terribly. They weren't, they were taxed something like triple what the white gold rush miners were taxed. The, the, the people, people did everything they could to stop them being part of their society. There's an epigraph at the start of the book that says, this land is not your land. And I found that really moving and really poignant because it's this twist on the... I suppose on the Woody Guthrie song and and that's sort of the question that comes up constantly throughout the book. What makes you American? What makes you belong? Is it something you feel? Is it about where you're born? And it relates to so much that's happening at the moment. If I could follow that thought and keep us in America, but the idea of belonging, one of the novels I've enjoyed the most during lockdown, and I'd had it on pre-order, I was desperate to read it, um, is Catherine Lace's Pew. And she's written two of the novels and a collection of short stories, and I've loved all of those. And I think there are themes that link her work. But this is a really extraordinary, short little novel, one of those perfect um, novels. And it's about a character, we never know if it's a man, a woman, or anything in between, called Pew who turns up in a pew in a church in a small town, um, an unnamed American small town, it's very conservative, very religious, and is kind of taken on by the community. So at first you think it's a kind of homeless, lost person that something's happened to. You're never quite sure how old Pew is. And as the novel develops, it's very clever in that she basically lets all of the characters around the town who kind of take on the work of looking after Pew. Different people have Pew to live in their house and over for dinner and things. Basically what you start to see is that all those characters are projecting things onto Pew. So Pew becomes the place where the secrets go. People say things to Pew they wouldn't say to each other. And as that plays out you get this feeling of this community that's living in a pretense of lots of things. But there's also, everyone keeps talking about this festival that's coming. So you're also slightly dreading, <laughs> as this town gets weirder and weirder, what on earth this festival is gonna be. And it's deeply weird. I won't go into too much detail about it because it will spoil it, but it's basically like a festival of forgiving and renewal where people shed inhibitions and things that have happened during the year. It's deeply weird. So it's a really interesting, I, I can't think of any other writer, um, possibly only Jesse Ball, who actually is Catherine Lacey's partner, which I think is really interesting, who is writing this kind of that. fiction. Yeah, really interesting. And if you, read, if you read their novels in parallel, there's some very interesting ideas, I think, that they share. But it's just a perfect, unusual novel that I am still thinking about months after having read it and um, that for me is always a marker that there's something really great going on. I've heard her talk and she often talks about the crisis of the self being like an interesting thing so often in her novels um, there are characters previously it's always been women who are looking for things either like the secret to health and wellness or they're trying to actively lose themselves and disappear. Really interesting territory. 
Well, speaking of the crisis of the self, kind of ties in with one of the best novels that I've read this year, which is The Death of Vivek Oji by Akweke Amezi. So I read Akweke Amezi's first novel, Freshwater, only this year as well, actually, but I was just immediately obsessed with their writing. Quite an experimental style, and um, Amezi's a non-binary author, and Freshwater deals with that sort of yeah, issues around identity and a non-kind of linear or stable self. And then The Death of Vivekoji kind of deals with similar things. So this novel set in Nigeria. And as you may have guessed by the title, Vivekoji, the main character, dies. So he, you know he's dead at the very start of the novel. But then you go back and see him grow up as a boy in Nigeria. You learn about his family and kind of build back up to his death, interspersed with him sort of as a character looking back on it a little bit so again it is quite a different style I really I'm impressed so impressed by the way Amezi I don't know feels very liberated in the way they write their novels and so it's a not a huge book but it's one that does so much I absolutely loved it and it's a kind of about grief definitely it's about family I also I don't want to give anything away because it's quite like a key plot point but again it very much becomes about identity and self and it's really moving quite upsetting it's set in Nigeria around the time of the civil war and kind of crisis in Nigeria um, and I watched such an interesting interview with Amezi talking to River Solomon it was a zoom interview kind of during lockdown and after having read the book then watching that interview just enhanced it even more because Akweke Mezi was talking about how they wanted to set it in that time in Nigeria because the first book is kind of mainly set in America so wanted to talk about Nigeria and um, and that really the thing that had spurred on writing that book was what had seemed like a small part of the book which is this group of wives of Nigerian men who aren't from Nigeria called um, Niger wives and they kind of all group together so the children mix and Vivek's mother is one of these Niger wives and the other characters who kind of make up his friends and family and yeah it was just fascinating to see where that sparked from and then it made me enjoy it even more but yeah it's a, it is a very sad book and quite a difficult one and it's it pushes a lot of taboos as well there's some kind of a very taboo relationship that happens that I saw a lot of people on Goodreads couldn't work it out or it made them not like the book I liked it and then again seeing the author talk about it and how they just wanted to see how far they could push the reader, see how, at what point would you stop rooting for this relationship? What's too far? I just think, yeah, it's a really exceptional novel. It's published by Faber. Mm. Sounds good. Now, the second fiction book I was going to flag up, another, we're back in America again, and it's Rodham by Curtis Sittenfeld, who's one of my favourite writers. I bought that sitting downstairs. Can't wait to read it. I'm currently listening to it on audio. (laughs) It's brilliant. It's so, I mean, it's as you would expect from Curtis Sittenfeld, who's a really smart, quite wry American writer who has form in taking real life figures and writing about them. So her book, American Wife, which was out several years ago, takes Laura Bush, the wife of George W. Bush, and takes some of some known facts about her life. She's a very private person, so there aren't, wasn't a huge amount publicly known about her, and then weaves a fictional 
imagining of that life. So American Wife was the first Kirsten Sittenfeld book I read and thought was incredible. And she's she's done it again with Rodham, I think. It's quite a, it's a very brave thing to do, to take a living person, a living, well-known person, oh. and to follow their life. So she follows Hillary's life up till she is in her late 20s using known biographical facts and embellishing them and adding her own imaginings and, and feelings in. Um, we know that Bill Clinton proposed to Hillary three times and that it was on the third time that she agreed to, to marry him and, and the rest is history. Curtis Sittenfeld imagines that when he asks, when Bill asks Hillary to marry him for the third time, she says no. And she goes back, she leaves Arkansas where she's been helping him campaign and run for, for, for local office and begins her own life and her, her own career trajectory. And it's just, it's just so cleverly done and so engaging and makes you think so much about what might have been and which of the Clintons really should have been, you know, should have been president all along. I've read Primary Colours as well, which is sort of about the Clintons, Joe Klein's book. He was a journalist that had been on, on the road with them. And there it's it's not so it's not the first time somebody's tried to sort of fictionalize their really unusual relationship but it's so interesting Curtis Sittenfeld attempts to understand their marriage and their relationship which we all know is, is probably quite unusual in some ways and it's really hard to separate the facts from the fiction actually mm. I kept finding myself thinking oh right yeah okay that's why she stayed you know that that's why I'm thinking no no this is this is a novel it's not real I had to keep reminding myself it's really interesting because it's written in first person or at least I'm only up to the first proposal first rejected proposal so I'm not that far in but yeah because it's using this real life person and then it's narrated first person it really you do feel like Hillary Clinton is just telling you this story and Sittenfeld does manage to make Bill Clinton and as someone who I'm you know was kind of a child when Bill Clinton was you know president or whatever all I know about him is really like the bad stuff has made him really charismatic and and I really believe why Hillary's so in love with him and yeah I am really enjoying the book so far and definitely think you do sometimes feel like oh god is this this isn't actually a biography. Yeah. Novel. It's a novel. Sittenfield has form with writing about Hillary Clinton, though, doesn't she? Yeah. It's in her so she, short stories. Yeah. She's yeah. in the, I think it's called You Think It, I'll Say It. It's a short, short story collection. Story. There's a story a about story. a journalist meeting Hillary, isn't there? But it's the very, it is the really real Hillary in real time, kind of. It is, but it's where I think she it's where she got the idea that she wanted to do more and think more about Hillary. And I think also probably was, I think for a lot of um, artists and writers who are living and working under Trump at the moment, it's a way of reimagining painting and creating a world that they would prefer to see. They should have just blurbed it with the line for fans of the West Wing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they should. And it is, it, if you like the West Wing, which so many people do, it's just, it, you will enjoy it. It's really, it's very easy to read as well. It's very clever, but it's mm, also very, very, very readable. Yeah. yeah, very readable. Just so we don't sound like we're only talking about American authors, 
I would like to bring us much closer to home. Um, my second fiction choice was um, The Bass Rock by Evie Wilde. Mm. And I was particularly interested in this because it's set in North Berwick, which is not far up the coast from the northeast. Um, and the Bass Rock is the famous rock that you can see in the seaside there. I mean, Evie Wilde, I think, is one of the most brilliant fiction writers we have in this country at the moment. But I think she still flies slightly below the radar, I feel. And maybe not as many people have, have read her as would enjoy her. This book is astonishing. And it did get quite a lot of heat, I think, from readers on YouTube and social media when it came out. And I think it is perhaps one of those novels that has suffered a bit from being published in the in the difficult Probably. early summer period when bookshops and things were closed and it is really worth reading. So it's a kind of a novel that steps over time lightly. You're in diff slightly different time zones and you're with different groups of women who are connected through a house but also in other ways psychologically kind of over time and it's it's many things. It's a kind of family saga, it's a portrait of a marriage in the 40s and 50s, it's about parenting children that aren't your own, about disloyalty within a marriage, but also basically overall by the time you're getting towards the end of the novel you realise what she's doing, which is taking a very very deep look at misogyny. So I ended up slightly surprised with this book. I know you've read it as well haven't you Grace? Yeah. By the end of it I was like oh my god she has kind of fooled me for half of this novel where I think I'm reading a slightly spooky historical uh, domestic saga and then suddenly it's like bam 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 here are the ideas that shape this novel and I think it's just an extraordinary achievement really I cannot believe it's not been on prize shortlist this year yeah. at all just I'm really surprised I totally do you totally, like it Grace totally agree I absolutely loved it um like you say there's these three timelines and the one you spend the most time with is this sort of gothic historical story which I loved because I love like gothic creepy spooky books and like you say there's all that stuff going on and the um atmosphere of being in this big house in Berwick and all the people who live there are a bit weird and there's this marriage and the kids and then you're getting these other two slightly lesser timelines the one in the present day at first I wasn't really connecting with and I was thinking oh I wish it was all this gothic one and then like you say then you get to what she's doing um, and you realize that basically for all that the 1940s 50s storyline is a kind of gothic story the modern day one is equally as terrifying but in no way spooky or ghostly. It's about misogyny, yeah, and about the male violence. And I think the whole book is an absolutely, just the best writing about kind of female rage uh, that I've ever read. And yeah, I think that book, I love Evie Wilde's other novel as well, All the Birds Singing, but yeah, I think The Bass Rock is amazing. Wow, It'll I make a it. brilliant film it. as well. Um, I love Evie Wilde's writing. I really link her with Australia though so strongly in my mind it's really interesting to hear that this one is not mm. set in Australia because she writes about the danger and the darkness of Australia so well. She's half Australian. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean she's brilliant. And, um, it, it's After the Fire, a still small voice. Did you yeah, read that one? That's the Australian one. Yeah. It's like the sense of place she summons up in all the novels is really strong. And the fun she has with location, I suppose, to inform character is yeah. always brilliant. Mm. I agree, though. It's strange that she's this fantastic writer that really has, I think, sort of slipped under the radar a bit, given the quality. Yeah. She also has a graphic novel that Karen yeah. and I read a couple of years ago. 
she's really talented I would mm. definitely recommend that people check her out and I'm really looking forward to and I think best I'm pretty sure she, we would have invited her to the book festival this year as well if we mm. yeah, had a chance definitely. you know I think there's a few there's yeah. a few books in our in our lists for this program that definitely. are the kind of people we would have loved to have invited to Durham another novel that I think may have kind of slipped under people's radar because of when it was published but that I think is brilliant is a debut novel called Gin Patrol on the Purple Line by Deepa Anapara. I'm surprised actually, I surprised myself that there isn't a kind of straightforward crime thriller book in this fall because I am like a huge mystery crime, literary mystery, anything like that reader and I think if you are but you also enjoy more general literary fiction and um, or just a good story, would highly recommend this book. So it's set in India and it's sort of looking at this basti, which is kind of like a, um, not a slum, but it's this sort of unregulated camp that people are living in and that the government are kind of threatening all the time to bulldoze. Um, and you're following this young boy who's the main character called Jay. And I sometimes don't get on with children as protagonists, but it really... I think opens up the book and yeah it gives it a really um adventurous fun feel so basically within what is not a very fun story so children are going missing from this basti and jay is about eight or nine years old and he thinks he wants to be a detective when he's older and so he and his friends set out to try and kind of solve it so you're following life in the basti you're getting like the bigger things that are going on around class in India but then you're also just following this young boy who's really excited and thinks he can solve it whenever another child goes missing you get a parrot or a small chapter from their perspective so the book has so much scope because you're getting in all these different characters heads it's so atmospheric the setting and you know you really can smell the smells of these like markets and alleyways um but ultimately, you know, you do find out what's been happening to these children and it's a heartbreaking story. It's like a searing look at class and all sorts of kind of political issues in India. But yeah, I think I would highly recommend it because it's so compelling. Um, it's so sort of richly written. It's fun, as I say, and adventurous, but also very moving. And it's saying some important things, I think. It was actually one of the last books that I bought for a lot, just before lockdown, when, when we knew it was going to happen, I made a mercy dash to forum books <laughs> oh. and to, to buy, I bought loads of books to send to my parents who were um, older and in, in proper lockdown. Mm. And I bought in a kind of panic of thinking it might be the last time we were, I would be able to do the bookshop for months, how, how right, how right I was, yeah. bought loads of books and that was one of them and I, I really want to go and read it now because it's been sitting on my to be read shelf for the whole of a lockdown but Helen, I know Helen at Forum Books who is always a great recommender of books was told me it was brilliant. Actually one of the books that I was also going to talk about was recommended by Helen at Forum Books whose taste is fantastic it's a book called Humankind by Rutger Bregman. It's actually nonfiction. I saw that Forum Books had flagged it up on their Instagram, I think, and I thought that looks really interesting. And it is really interesting. It's also a really good book for everybody to read at this moment in time when things are feeling quite difficult and it, it, you know, we're having to really motivate ourselves to feel hopeful and optimistic. The premise of the book is that humans are actually innately good and kind and that 
there is hope for us as a as a society and as a as a world. Rutger Bregman is quite a young Dutch philosopher, so he's got a really engaging style, quite easy to read, but dealing with quite big ideas. So he takes the two philosophers, Hobbes and Rousseau. Hobbes believed that humans were essentially bad and Rousseau believed that humans were essentially good and he takes Rousseau and decides that's who he's going to get on board with and then spends the rest of the book finding lots of really interesting examples of why Rousseau was right. So as long as you accept that that's what the book is, I'm sure there are plenty of people that will read the book and go, well, I can find an example that totally disproves that. But I think in the spirit of the times that we're in at the moment, I was happy to read it and kind of feel optimistic and inspired. There's all these brilliant examples that he finds throughout time of when humans have actually worked together, built communities in the face of all kinds of adversity. He has this fascinating example of um, a real life Lord of the Flies kind of scenario that happened as we know, and William Golding's Lord of the Flies, the boys are marooned on an island and all gradually turn against each other and everything, they become feral and everything just goes horribly wrong. Some really sort of um, pessimistic, misanthropic kind of view. Rutger Bregman uncovers a story from about, I think, sort of 70 or 80 years ago, a group of boys run away from their boarding school and are marooned on a, a desert island. I think the boarding school was in Tonga. They are marooned on a desert island and actually form a really happy functioning community where they all helped each other. They, create, they were only about 12 years old, I think. They were eventually rescued by an Australian sailor who found them all perfectly happy. One of them had broken his leg and they, they'd worked together to heal his leg, creating a splint and bandage. You know, it was just the opposite to Lord mm. of the Flies. So there's all sorts of examples like that that just show that actually humans aren't really that bad. That sounds like what people need right now. I think it is. I think it is. I think that's why Helen had flagged it during those dark days of lockdown as as something we should all have a look at. I think think this is really interesting, Rebecca, because the next book I'm going to talk about, I think, probably shows the psychological differences between you and I. (laughs) In in a time of darkness and fear, you look for hope. And I just go... Give me the books that are going to tell me the truth about how bad this really is. So um, my nonfiction choice is an absolutely, it's a rollicking read as well as I think a very urgently timely and important book about the world kind of geopolitics. So Shadow State by Luke Harding, who has been at the festival before he has. He um, has. and was great fun. I mean, he's the Guardian's, yeah. for a long time, was the Guardian's man in Russia and still, I think, is one of the, the best writers we have on what on earth is going on with Russia. Um, so this book, I mean, it reads like a thriller, basically. And its, it's subtitle is Murder, Mayhem and Russia's Remaking of the West. So it's all about how the Cold War hasn't ended. The Cold War has just become a digital fake news, missing war of information. And so chapter by chapter, you get different perspectives on this. So it's everything from the Salisbury poisoning and how that played out diplomatically. So you're getting the kind of stuff you don't hear on the news, which is what was going on between embassies and politically how people were quietly trying to use diplomacy 
to sort things out, but also how outdated diplomacy is becoming in the face of some of this stuff. But there's also just brilliant stuff about how old fashioned some of the spying business is in um, Russia. So how weak it can be when citizen journalists and other people decide to try and unpick things. So you just get this picture of this, I mean, really appalling state of the world where, yes, the Russians did interfere in the American election. Yes, they interfered in Brexit. We all just know this. Everyone knows this now. We should just accept it and begin, I think, to understand everything through that prism. And chaos is the playbook now that that we're seeing. So it's just brilliant, but it's also really amusing. Luke Harding couldn't write a boring sentence if he tried. Um, and he also goes off to interview lots of people. So you get um, former spies and people who are deep in the kind of spying world telling you how it all really works. So one of the things this book has made me realise is that it reminded me how much I love John le Carre's spy novels. Um, so I'm kind of now owning up, I think, to myself that I probably have a quite strong interest in spy fiction and spy non-fiction, which I'm, I'm going to develop a bit. So I'd really recommend that. But also I've just been reading another book that, again, actually talks a bit about how the Cold War is now framing a lot of our politics and what's going on in the world. And it's a long essay, really. Um, Twilight of Democracy, The Failure of Politics and the Parting of Friends by Anne Applebaum. I know her work because I read a book she wrote years ago called Gulag, which was amazing. Again, because of my interest in Russia. Um, but I hadn't realised that she was on the right, kind of politically, in terms of her journalism. Um, and this set of essays is about how she has parted friends, basically, with many of her former kind of conservative middle ground right-wing friends who have now all become really extreme right-wing people and she charts the fall of democracy in Hungary and in other parts of Eastern Europe then turns to England and Boris Johnson and Brexit and basically starts to show us how we are following exactly the same pattern of behaviours in our government so the book is really about whether or not democracy is sustainable or whether or not it will turn out to be sustainable so it's a kind of alarming it's one of those books where you want to go "Ooh, this feels like a book really about now but also gives you some really good contextual information you know about other parts of Europe I'm just on the final chapter of this book and it's about to be about Trump and Cohen and actually in the Luke Harding book as well there is a whole bit which is just about what is it that Russia has got on Trump because they've got something yeah. you know so I just feel like you know the world we're living in at the moment is like a John le Carre spy novel um, on many levels so I you know I am feeling a real thirst at the moment to find those books that help you understand it you know yeah. but, but what I'm finding the more I read of those books the, the news is basically way worse than you might have thought. That's, that's <laughs> the bottom line, unfortunately. This really <laughs> reminds me, this really reminds me of my ambition to one time get Fiona Hill, who was the White House Russia expert, to come and visit us because she's, of course, from Durham, grew up in Durham, now lives in Washington, yes. D.C. So She was impressive in those hearings, wasn't in she? In the impeachment hearings, yeah. And that's just reminded me that that would be on our, I would say, wish list of future book festival speakers or commissions, wouldn't it? How interesting yeah. if we could lure her to come home and, and speak to us. I'd say I'm somewhere in between in that I, I haven't gone as far as Claire into like actively looking for things that are going to make me um, stressed. Although I would say that having 
just recorded our event with Laura Bates and her new book, Men Who Hate Women, that has fascinated and terrified me in terms of, it's all about incels basically and like the misogynistic groups that exist in the world. So definitely go and register for that event on the Durham Book Festival website because it is, yeah, that was something that I wanted to know about. And afterwards, you're glad you know it, as I'm sure you were saying, Claire, but you're also a bit kind of like, oh, it's so much worse than I thought. Um, so I haven't been going that far, but I did allow myself to read a bit of kind of dystopian fiction, which isn't something that I usually do. I haven't gone as far into like the pandemic novels, which I just think anyone who's reading pandemic novels now, like you're made of stronger stuff than me. But I read Little Eyes by Samantha Schweblin. So it was on the long list for the international booker. Samantha Schweblin is a Argentinian author. It's translated. And it's basically, it's really strange. It's kind of very like Black Mirror-esque. It's about the world with, but there's this new invention and they're called Kentuckys and they're like little, uh, almost like soft toys, but on wheels with cameras in them. And you can buy a Kentucky and keep it as a pet or you can pay to be, in that you'd be a keeper if you have one, or you can pay to be a Kentucky dweller so you get to control a Kentucky, you get randomly assigned one. And so someone will have this little panda toy, that's, for instance. That's so they're not like humans, cover. they're not like human size. They're little robots, like a little like panda bear. No, no, like a soft toy, say. So oh. like about the size of like a teddy bear or a little bit smaller. And it would look like a soft toy panda. But if you're the dweller, you can make it move and you can see out of its eyes. So you have no way of knowing who you're connected to. So people, some people keep them as pets because they're lonely. Obviously, some people dwell in them. But as you can imagine, a lot of people use them for much more nefarious reasons. So you follow them. Um, it's kind of like, it reads a little bit like a collection of short stories in that you follow a few, maybe like 10 or less than that narratives of just someone's experience being a Kentucky dweller or a Kentucky keeper, but they're sort of interwoven between them um, and it's just such an interesting look at I guess the possibilities of technology but also all the bad things that can happen it's a really interesting look at power dynamics because you know someone thinks they have this pet and they love them and they treat them like a pet but there's a human sat behind that and at what point is someone taking advantage of the other there's some really eerie creepy bits where you realize what the dweller or what the keeper has been doing um, and there's some really kind of horrific moments in it that are just horrific and scary in that you know it's just humans taking advantage but yeah it was such an interesting look I do sometimes get a bit scared of technology and terrified that yeah. we're gonna I don't know why people want to build AI when like like AI robots when like every film you've ever seen where we do that they take over the world and kill us they so do. that does sometimes scare me but this was a good little dipping my toes into the future of technology but yeah it was a really interesting like very yeah to look at kind of human desires and the dark side and yeah I'd really recommend it it was really readable oh. I flew through it I read her novella a few years ago Fever Dream, Fever Dream. Yeah, she was very like lots of people were talking about that book a couple of years ago she's Argentinian isn't she so they're yeah. in translation that was billed as a kind of really not dystopian but kind of slightly out there book and I and in the end I think it was really about pollution it, it was one of those it surprised me because yeah. it was weird and creepy and odd things were happening. But then I, in the end, I felt it had a very direct, quite straightforward message. And it made me realise I didn't know much about what was going on in Argentina in terms of mm. this being, those kind of things being a real issue. 
Little Eyes sounds much more out there. It's, <laughs> it's so terrifying. You're with characters all over the world as well because she is, I feel like often, you know, you're reading something, even a dystopian where it's lots of different characters, they'll all be set in, you know, in America or the UK. So it was really interesting because these characters, these different stories was all over the world. And so, yeah, I would really recommend it. The only piece of actual lockdown writing that has been written during lockdown I've read is the Zadie Smith Intimations essay collection, almost mm. a pamphlet, actually. That just made me think. I actually loved it. I think it's brilliant. I'd really recommend it. Claire, I know you've, you're reading it at the moment as well. It's a really slight mm. collection of essays from Zadie Smith written in both New York and London and written between I, I think just written over sort of March April and May the foreword is, is the end of May 2020 London I'd really recommend it to anybody actually there's some hope in there but there's also anger and lots of kind of relatable experiences but just written in her incredibly smart engaging clever style it will be interesting to return to this in a few years time maybe and see how it feels reading mm. these when we're hopefully on the other side of all of this yeah and kind of how it feels i saw on instagram grace that you were reading zadie smith's novel on beauty yes i read um i got quite into zadie smith over lockdown i read swing time and then i just wanted to buy all the other books of hers that i hadn't read so yeah i just read on beauty uh, where there's a character called Claire Malcolm, which is your name. Yes. I know, I know, that's why I brought it up, obviously. I love that Zadie Smith's Claire Malcolm is a slender, difficult poet. So I think in um, character and form, we're about as opposite as it could be. <laughs> but it was brilliant when that book came out. So many people messaged me and went, you're in Zadie Smith's new novel. I was like, no, I'm not. These essays tell us about that she, how she does base characters in, on, in her work on real people. So that one of the essays references a man who lives at the end of her street in New York. Yeah, good old Lady Smith. It'll be really exciting to see what her next novel is, won't it? My final book is a self-improvement book and a book I would not, I think, have picked up a year ago or a, a type of book I would not have picked up a year ago. So when we were having conversations around Black Lives Matter and reading diversely at work in the summer, one of our board members, John, and I had a conversation about what diversity really meant, which is really interesting. And we were talking about books that we would never read or books we don't think are anything to do with us. Um, and he told me about this book and I thought, right, I would never read that. So I'm gonna have a go at reading it. A, I suppose in my head I was thinking to see if I can understand it, <laughs> but B, because it would be something I would never have read. So I bought a copy of The Deficit Myth by Stephanie Kelton, which is a book about modern monetary theory and how to build a better economy. And actually it's great and you can understand it even if you're not an economist. She was an economic advisor or part of the economic advising team to Obama. Do you remember when he first came into presidency and it was the 2008 financial crisis oh. and it was about the stimulus program. I mean, it's very similar to COVID times, the money that the state then has to just pump into the economy to keep things together. And the modern monetary theory is all about how if you have sovereign wealth, which our country does, America does, and many others do, 
you can actually print as much money as you like, put as much money into the economy as you want. But there are risks around inflation and how that behaves if you do it. So it's quite, I found this completely revelatory in that her pitch is spending is basically just a political decision. So all this stuff about how, you know, we've heard a lot of it from during austerity about how we have to manage our budget like it's a household budget for the country, you know, and she's basically saying, no, it's not like that at all. That's a fake, completely fake way to think about it and describe it. But actually, she also believes many politicians themselves don't understand this stuff so that they cling on to ideas like that. So it's a revelatory book, really, about economics and how different it could be. So I was really pleased I'd tried to read it. And I'm going to try and get better at having these arguments with people about (laughs) kind of spending. Because it's kind of, you know, politically, to me, this is revelatory. If you don't have to decide how much money you spend on the benefit system or Mm. on things like the furlough scheme, if that's actually just a political decision, then imagine how different the world could be with things like universal income or stimuluses, you know, or green futures and green new deals and things. So I was really glad I read this. Naomi Klein really rates her, which I think is probably a good sign. But I would recommend it to anyone who, A, thinks they can't read books like this, (laughs) but B, might want a different view of what politics and economics are together. I think I learned a lot from this. And that's just reminded me that the breaking news of today is, of course, that Barack Obama's memoirs are going to be published in November, the first volume of, which is quite exciting. So Penguin have just announced that A Promised Land by Barack Obama, which is going to be volume one of his presidential memoirs, is coming out on the 17th of November. So that's kind of something to look forward to. You were a big fan of Michelle Obama's book, weren't you? I was a fan of both Michelle Obama and Barack Obama's other books. He has two other sort of memoir style books, both of them before he became president, which are really candid for for someone who was going to be running for office and knew he was going to be running for office, a really open and candid. I mean, I love memoir and biography. It's my favourite. I love the I love it as much as fiction. So I'm very excited to hear about that. Well, that brings me nicely on to the last book I wanted to talk about, which is a memoir. Um, And I've been getting more into memoir. It wasn't something that I'd read a lot of, but actually I think you're so right, Rebecca, it can be as compelling and, you know, sometimes more moving and thought-provoking than fiction. Um, And this one definitely was, uh, and it's In the Dream House by Carmen Maria Machado. This is published by Serpent's Tale, but she'd released a collection of short stories called Her Body and Other Parties that everyone I saw talking about like a couple of years ago, everyone said they were brilliant. I shockingly don't read. I love how I'm just like, yeah, I don't read memoir. I don't read nonfiction. I don't really (laughs) read many short stories. I'm trying to get better, but I will be now because this memoir was so stunningly written. It's her memoir specifically about being in an abusive lesbian relationship. Um, And so she writes it in such an interesting experimental way in that the dream house is this house that they for a period shared together and she retells the relationship and reimagines this house as a variety of literary tropes and ideas and looks at kind of a lot of queer theory so it's written in vignettes sort of some of them are quite long some of them are quite short but they'll all be called like dream house as 
famous last words, dream house as romance novel, dream house as deja vu. And so she takes these like literary forms that we're used to and uses them to delve into what is obviously a really difficult and like quite traumatic time of her life. Um, and I think it's a really good mixture of the personal, it's extremely moving and difficult to read about that. But also, like I say, she looks at her own experience in the context of abusive queer relationships i'm using her words she uses the term mm -hmm. queer but and how that isn't something that is written about it's even really like researched properly um and how obviously we're very aware of abuse in kind of heteronormative relationships um and it's easier to understand that as like man usually being abuser but she's really interested in how that changes when it's too women specifically because that's in her case so yeah it was just I mean her writing is honestly like breathtakingly good um and yeah it just was on the one hand a really moving personal account of something that I think is really important to read about if not always easy but also it was really um adventurous in its literary style and I found all the engaging with that kind of theory which isn't something that I read a lot of was actually really fascinating worked really well as well she is um, like Latinx, but she has like is an American writer. Yeah. I was just going to um, give a big up and a shout out or whatever it is the young people say um, for <laughs> some books by previous winners of the Golden Burn Prize. Mm. Um, so there are three at the moment that I've got had my eye on over the summer. Um, David Keenan, who won the prize last year, has a new novel out with White Rabbit, I think it's called Ex Stabbeth. I may have mispronounced that. Um, I haven't read this yet, but it looks great. He's an amazing out there writer. Um, reading his book for the Good Times last year when it won the prize was something I will never forget. I don't think anyone who's read that novel <laughs> forgets, it leaves a trace. Um, but also Jesse Ball, who won the year before David, I think, has a new book out called The Diver's Game. And again, it's like he won the Gordon Byrne Prize for his novel Census, which was a, a amazing, amazing novel about, well, it's almost impossible to describe. It's about so many things. Um, this looks as weird and as brilliant. Um, it's about two little girls, Leith and Lois, um, who it says they navigate the perimeters of a segregated city armed with canisters of killing gas. So wow. there you go. So it's a slightly oh, future... Yeah. It's this world, but it's a world, I think, where people have been segregated into rich and poor or something probably a bit more complicated like that. Mm. And you're protected with these little canisters of gas that you have about your person. I'm only a few chapters in and they're about to visit a zoo, so I have no idea what's <laughs> going to happen. But I mean, he I would just say he's always worth reading. And if you haven't read him, it's brilliant. And if you read him alongside Catherine Lacey, Catherine I think Lacey. that's even more interesting. <laughs> And then I know, I know this is a writer that loads of us love, um, Denise Minor, who also won the Gordon Byrne Prize, has her new novel, The Less Dead. This arrived a couple of weeks ago. I took to my bed on a Saturday, <laughs> basically didn't get up, read it all in one go. It's just extraordinary. It's a really clever plot um, about a woman called Margot who is adopted and as an adult decides to try and find her birth family. But what she finds is that her mother had been murdered just mm. not long after her birth and had been working as a prostitute. So she gets involved with her aunt, who is 
applying a similar trade or has done and a whole kind of um, slight, I don't want to say underworld, it's not really that, but she's, she's a kind of doctor. So she's a very straight middle class mm. person. And she basically discovers she has a new family who are not all good people in a kind of underclass, I suppose. So she gets taken into this different world to try and find out who murdered her mother. It's absolutely gripping. And like all of Denise's books, she writes real people extraordinarily yes. well. So you just, be I believed everyone in this book. I believed everything about how they lived, how they talked, what they did. And it's got some really creepy stuff in it as well. But yeah. it's a ripe page turner. She's just brilliant. You love her as well, don't you? Yeah, guys? I absolutely love her books. Yeah, you're right. You just, you would need to have the time to take to your bed when one arrives because they're so <laughs> compulsive. There's nothing like a really great crime novel, I think, to agree. Just... Then I have to shout out the book that I am so excited for, potentially the most <laughs> excited for this year, which is Tana French's new crime novel, The Searcher, which is coming out in November. I'm yet to be able to read it and it's painful. Um, Tana French is an Irish crime writer and in my very humble opinion, one of the best crime writers writing. So she wrote the Dublin Murder Squad series, which is very popular, got a TV show. And then her first standalone, The Witch Elm, came out in 2019, I think, early 2019, and was, you know, really well received. And now it's another standalone. And yeah, I just think she is so brilliant, really layered, but so compulsive. There's always a good, really satisfying ending, but she writes the setting so well, the characters, I think this one's set in rural Ireland, which will be really interesting because previously her books have been in Dublin. Um, I love Irish fiction anyway, and my family are all from rural Ireland, so I'm excited to see where that takes us. But yeah, I'm very excited for that one, I must say. Her novel, her crime novel, Broken Harbour, is one of my favourite crime novels ever. Agreed, so yeah, amazing. Again, she's, we've never had her at the festival. I don't think she does many events. No, I don't think she does. She's got such a loyal fan base. Mm. I love The Witch Elm. That's the only book of hers that I've read and I was really absorbed. Really, it's re It was really long, but I was really absorbed by it. Hopefully a copy will be winging its way to you soon, Grace. <laughs> <laughs> and then we'll, we can, you can lend it to me afterwards. Exactly. Yeah. So, so we've obviously all been reading a lot then, haven't we, over lockdown? We've got the festival coming. So I've also, I suppose, the last few weeks been reading books for that. And I'm looking forward to reading some of the books for events that I've not been directly involved in. But it has been, as you were saying at the beginning, Rebecca, a really intense year for book publication. And this October is going to be insane, isn't it, with um, the number of new books that have been all been held yeah. back. And Well, 600 books were published on the same day in early September, which is a lot for people to digest. There are so many, I think, that we should all be keeping our eyes peeled for. Tana French being one. I'm really excited about several memoirs and biographies, as discussed, that, that that's one of my favourite genres. So Martin Amos's book, Inside Story, is being published this autumn. This is the wow. much-anticipated sequel, I think, to Experience, which was his memoir that was published in 2001. I think it's a bit more experimental than experience was. I think it play he plays around a bit a bit more with sort of some fictional elements, weaving some fictional elements in. I loved experience. It's on my in my top probably five autobiographies of all time. So I've wow. got really high yeah, I've got really high expectations for this one. 
Um, I think he was motivated to write it by the death of Christopher Hitchens a few years ago, um, who's one of the key players in experience as, as his closest friend. And I have been thinking a lot about what Christopher Hitchens would have had to say about what we've been going through over the last few months. I would have loved to have heard him talk about Trump as well. Instead, though, we do have brilliant Zadie Smith in her essays, as mentioned earlier. There is another authorised biography that I'm super excited for, which is called, let's do it, The Authorised Biography of Victoria Wood by Jasper Reed. I mean, I miss her so much. I think we all miss her so much. And thinking about, again, what people would have made of this period that we're living through, if only we still had her around to help us a bit with um, <laughs> with this time <laughs> in our lives. So this is by the journalist Jasper Reese, who'd interviewed her a lot. It's published by Trapeze and it's coming out on the 15th of October. And apparently the publisher has sent me some information and it's been written with the approval and help of her family and closest friends, including Julie Walters, Dawn French, Celia Imry, and also all of her family have, have contributed to it as well. So well, I think that sounds great. Because she was quite a private person, really, wasn't she? I don't know much yeah. about her private life or she was a life. private she was a private person but this looks like according to the information I've been sent it goes right back there's an extract from one of her essays when she was at Berry Grammar School that they found and I think this will probably be a very well received book this autumn so I'm really looking forward to that so many really I'm very excited about the new Jonathan Coe book, which is called Mr. Wilder mm. and Me, which is, according to the publisher, a dazzling new novel from the Bright Prize winning bestselling author of Middle England. And this time it's the heady summer of 1977 and a naive young woman called Callista sets out from Athens to venture into the wider world on a Greek island that has been turned into a film set. She finds herself working for the famed Hollywood director Billy Wilder about whom she knows almost nothing, but the time she spends in this glamorous, unfamiliar new life will change her for good. Well, mm. I can't wait. It makes me think a little oh. bit of Beautiful Ruins by Jess Walters, which I loved as well. Yeah, I love I um, love that book. Yeah, which is being made into um, a film, I think, at the moment, or, or perhaps already has. Oh, is it? Mm-hmm. What else? So have, what else have you got? I know you. I know you've got a list, haven't you, of um, what you're looking forward to. Although I'm noting that that's the second book you've talked about that is about a real person. Oh, well, that's in a fictionalized my context. Great, my great love, isn't it? <laughs> One that isn't about a fictionalized person that I'm super excited for is Love After Love by Ingrid Perso. It's already out. It was published earlier this year. I know, Grace, you love this book, don't you? And it's yes. kind of. I read it last on your... year because we did a proof right. party at Durham Book Festival and I got a copy we've also got proof parties this year if you'd like to head over to the program but yeah, yeah it was one of the best books that I read last year it's absolutely beautiful and yeah I can't wait for you to read it Rebecca I think you'll love it I just think it's got me written all over it brave and brilliant steeped in affection love after love asks us to consider what happens at the very brink of human forgiveness and offers hope to anyone who is loved and lost and is yet to find their way back and Ingrid is a Trinidadian author who now lives in the UK and yeah I think this is going to be a really great autumn read 
How about you, Grace? What are you excited about other than Tana? Other than Tana, I'm excited. In terms of having come out yet, um, I'm really excited to read Stuart Turton's new book, The Devil in the Dark Water. So he wrote The Seven and a Half Deaths of Evelyn Hardcastle, which came out a couple of years ago with Bloomsbury. And it's this mad time travel sci-fi crime novel that feels like an Agatha Christie because it's set in the early 1900s at a big party. And it was just, it's massive. I read it almost exactly two years ago today because that's the sort of thing I remember. And it, yeah, it blew my mind. So everyone, I know a lot of people have been excited for his new book. But then I also think I want to use Autumn to catch up on some of the summer releases that I've just missed. I mean, I've read 96 books so far this year and I still feel like mm-hmm. I've missed loads of stuff. So I really want to read Anxious 96, People. 96, 96. I know, I doesn't say much for my social life, does it? Um, <laughs> I really want to read Anxious People by Frederick Bachman, which was published yes. in August. He's the author of Bear Town, which I absolutely love, and a man called Uva. And it's about um, a group of people, I think, looking around in a, like a, an apartment, like an open house to rent an apartment, and then someone comes in with a gun and takes them all hostage. So that sounds brilliant. And also Mexican Gothic by Silvia Marino Garcia, which is like a horror novel set in Mexico in the 1950s um, that just sounds weird and wonderful and I've heard great things about that as well. There's so much 50s fiction and the 50s seems to be this era that lots of writers are revisiting in different Yeah. at the moment don't you think because we've got two in the fifth festival program we've got Claire Chambers and Louise Hare who have both written novels set during that time period and kind of speculate that maybe there's something a bit comforting for us about though I don't think this one's going to be too comforting I don't think it's comforting and it wasn't comforting was it it was austerity Britain it was a bit grim really wasn't it but well this one I think has some quite extreme gory horror so I'll see if I feel comforted afterwards I'll I'll let you know what about you Claire I haven't got any gory horror but do either (laughs) of you know what a Mount Weasel is no literary quiz no, it is a fake entry deliberately inserted into a dictionary or work of reference, often Ooh. used as a safeguard against copyright infringement. How cool is that? That's so cool. I'm reading that from the um, jacket of the Liars Dictionary by Ellie Williams, mm. who I'd never read Ellie Williams until she was part of an event we did at the book festival last year. Yeah, and I thought she year. was brilliant. Yes. And I know lots of people love her short story collection, A Trip. So this is her first novel and it just seems brilliant. It's set in the final year of the 19th century. Peter Winsworth has reached the letter S and he's toiling away writing a dictionary and then we time leap I think into um, contemporary day and somebody else is working on a contemporary dictionary and I think it's about links between the past and now. Um, I mean Ellie is brilliant with language, very playful and Mm. kind of with language in her short stories and things so I am really excited to read this. I also find her writing really funny and it's not often you read a genuinely funny novel I think so I'm hoping this might be a good laugh as well I read recently this I don't think this is out yet but it's coming um and I know you like this author Rebecca Emma Klein's short story collection Daddy brilliant title I've been reflecting on the title of this collection now I've read um most of the stories she's brilliant I mean she's about age 12 I think or something (laughs) she wrote that amazing novel The Girls which was huge and brilliant um, and these stories are great. They're often about people in transition. There's a lot of stories that end with people driving off or getting into a car 
kind of like dot 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 you know and I love I have a bit of a soft spot for stories like that that slightly leave you mm. hanging but she's just a brilliant writer it's like she's been writing for years and years you know just totally confident storytelling yeah. and then two authors that we have had contact with at New Writing North um Karis Davis has a new novel out The Mission House I loved loved her novel West which was a western mm -hmm. a very short western yeah. um yeah. this is set in a former British hill station in contemporary India and it's about an Englishman who I think goes to India to get his life together it says it's about belief and non-belief mm. and kind of post-colonial ideas I mean Karis is the most beautiful writer like again sentence by sentence her prose is amazing so this will be as much about the style as it will be about the plot I guess but she's also really good at plot so I'm very, genuinely really excited to read that and then Andrew Hagen, who's an, an author that I've probably read more of his non-fiction than his yes. fiction, because he's an amazing essay writer. Yeah. But um, this is a novel, and it, oh, it sounds, I've kind of been saving this. It arrived a few weeks ago, and I kept saving it. So I'm really looking forward to it. It's about two boys from a small working class Scottish town set in the mid 80s who escape their life in that town as teenagers and go to the Mecca that is Manchester to find the music and freedom. It has an air, I don't, I've not read much about it, but it feels like it might be a bit autobiographical. It's and very it's autobiographical. About, is it? Very autobiographical. So. It's really about him. I'm, I also have this on my pile, very excited. It's about him, his best friend in real life died from cancer very recently. And he asked Andrew uh. to write us back into life again which oh, I found very moving oh and oh, so he's so fictionalized moving. he's fictionalized their experiences they were they remained best friends for their entire life and he lost him oh. very recently so it's I it's, cry very easily so this looks oh, like it's yeah. probably going to have me in yeah, bits but, yeah. um, again yeah. just beautiful writer I've enjoyed all of his novels that I've read um, so very excited about that and then two more for the dark and um, depressing stuff perhaps <laughs> although I don't see them that way um, I'm really excited to finish um, Notes from an Apocalypse by Mark O'Connell um, which is all about how we are obviously we are in the climate crisis but it's really I think about how we are living through this moment of knowing the terrible potential future and continuing to watch cartoons and get on with our lives and do things like that. So he, mm. I think, travels across the world to find out how different people in different countries, like billionaires building their um, doomsteads in New Zealand and other people with less money, what we're doing, preppers, kind of how people are thinking about what the future is going to be like and how we negotiate it. It's got a brilliant picture on the cover of a man reading a newspaper with just burning trees behind him but those burning trees look pretty much like what we're seeing in California really? at the moment so you know there is no getting away from this um, issue and then just a very small book um, an essay how to stay sane in an age of division by Elif Shafak who I know um, lots of us love yeah. um, and this is really just how we stay sane in an age of division and I've seen Elif talk at um, Edinburgh Book Festival before and always really appreciated her take on this as a Turkish writer coming from a different culture and kind of political place. I think she really understands and has a meaningful perspective on some of these bigger ideas that affect all of us now. So I'm interested to read that. And I like a good long essay. So that mm. fits that idea. Yeah. Well. And that was written pre that was written pre-COVID, wasn't it? That was yeah. that was um yeah. 
already yes, out it's there. Part, it's published by the Welcome Collection, and I think it might have been commissioned by um, Welcome in some in some form as like contemporary thinking. Mm, yeah, because uh, it's yeah. profile publisher, obviously with the Welcome, and it's funny because the last thing that I did pre-COVID that was normal was have a meeting with one of the publicists from Profile there and she told me about that book so it's funny it's kind of bookended the experience. <laughs> yeah. So there's lots yeah. to look forward to and I mean I feel like I've hardly even really started to look at what else is coming out this autumn. I know I mean, and know. I'm just remembering I haven't I was going to mention a graphic novel we haven't really talked about graphic novels and there's a graphic novel we've got a couple of graphic novel events in the festival program one with New York based graphic novelist Adrian Tomini and another with the Northeast England based graphic novelist Brian and Mary Talbot so please do check those events out which I think will be really good and another graphic novel I would have loved to have included in the program this year and we we just couldn't was Glass Town by Isabel Greenberg which is all about the Bronte siblings and the fictional worlds that they created of children so it's based inspired by the their juvenilia which is i think all at the parsonage bronte parsonage in Haworth. but it's um really moving actually and their lives were really difficult and it kind of through illustration it juxtaposes how sort of bleak and grim the life in Haworth was and the, the, the problems they were facing as a family and bramwell's spiraling alcoholism and that kind of thing with these very rich imaginative worlds that they created and sort of lost themselves in well into adulthood it's a really beautiful, really beautifully produced book. I'd really recommend it. And I would really suggest if you think you don't like graphic novels to give this one a go, because I think you almost forget it's a, it's a graphic novel. It's just this brilliant book about the, about the Brontes and their world. So, Such yeah. Such a lovely yeah, idea as well, isn't it? I've yes. seen some of the, I once went to the Bronte Parsonage when we were doing an event with Sarah Waters which was exciting in itself but they yeah. showed us some of the tiny little books that you see on display yes. there which um, the Bronte sisters and their brother used to write that had which is kind of comes yeah. out in this novel all these imagined worlds and little characters but I thought that idea to form a graphic novel story out of that was really clever really interesting mm. really um, but also clever. I think will appeal to a huge amount of readers Absolutely. And I always think don't be scared of graphic novels, people, because there, there's actually a whole wealth of great stuff out there. So do check them out. Brilliant. Well, this has been fun. It has. Thank you for tuning in, everybody. If you want to find out more about any of the books we've talked about, you can check out the show notes to find out more. Durham Book Festival is a Durham County Council Festival produced by New Writing North with support from Durham University and Arts Council England. The 2020 programme contains over 50 free events. Please visit durhambookfestival.com to find out more.